0: Welcome to episode 33 of Expanding Beyond. Um, How are you doing, Monica?
1: I was enjoying one of the last few days of sun, I assume, looking at the forecast. Uh, (laughs) And also the fact that uh, uh, daylight saving time will soon be over. So I was on the balcony, basking in the sun and reading some books. So pretty good.
0: Uh, Yeah, I enjoyed it by uh walking to the supermarket on foot <laughs> <laughs> but well, it was also nice getting out of the house
1: to be honest that's what i did in the morning so. <laughs>
0: yeah. all right so uh, i think it was last time where we uh celebrated did we celebrate the 2000 downloads across all episodes i don't know Maybe i it was think just we did. yes yeah and this time we can celebrate this uh, the first month with more than 200 downloads which was Thank September, which was, I mean, that's pretty cool already. So it also is our best month actually. Well, basically comes from, <laughs> from that statement, <laughs> <laughs> but it is really cool. It's been steadily uh, growing and it's just amazing to know that. Well, I probably said the same thing last time that people are actually listening to this.
1: I will literally it's think th- about it. still it's like cool. 200 people. <laughs> listening to what we say
0: yeah maybe it's not 200 people but you never know more than zero let me dream really good
1: (laughs) it's a small conference
0: Mm -hmm. that's true that's true yeah those are the best ones yeah
1: yes i miss conferences
0: Mm.
1: (sighs) yeah (laughs) next year next year next
0: year all right so Uh, I don't have really any topics to discuss this, this week, the last, uh, the last week or a bit more was a bit tumultuous and I'm not sure I should talk about stuff in that state. (laughs) (laughs) I will come back with stuff next week or the next time basically. Um, but you have interesting topics to discuss Monica.
1: I hope they are to you as much as they are to me. What happened in the past couple of weeks? Well, it's not really just the past couple of weeks, but it became more uh, more present uh, at that time. The team I'm leading is about uh, allowing the company to uh, get access to new markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, with uh, new markets come new responsibilities. That's a bad joke. But it comes, you know, the difficulty of dealing with multiple audiences and multiple languages, especially in a highly regulated environment like that of health uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, medical devices. So um, I was used to, phonetics application was translated in uh, localized in nine different languages. Mm -hmm. We had uh, the the usual ones, you know, like English and French and uh, Russian and Italian, of course, uh, of course, uh, (laughs) and so on. (laughs) But we also had something a little bit more peculiar, like Russian, and yeah, okay, but Japanese and uh, Polish, to name a couple, and Mm -hmm. uh, Portuguese, because uh, our second best market back in the days was Brazil. So I was used to, since it was always the aim of the company to get to as many people as possible out there. I was used to a certain process. It's like when I joined, there was already a localization team of one person, uh, but <laughs> uh she was, man- well, she was managing everything, to be honest, but there were plenty of, you know, uh, translators. Uh, these were uh, freelancers. So she was doing uh, project management there. There were inside the company, people that would be called language owners and would double check, and do internal QA on uh, on languages because mm-hmm. our app also has videos, for example, and you have to translate also those videos and so on and so forth. Anyway, so I was used to have a certain structure already, and it was really an, a no brainer that of saying, okay, let's let's translate the app in an, in another language. I mean, it still took us four months to do
0: it in in Polish, but whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you have enough space everywhere for the words? (laughs) That was
1: one of the issues. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like these languages can be so complex. For example, I learned that uh, Polish doesn't doesn't only has singular and plural, but it actually has different uh, wording, different way of uh, like writing the words based on the numbers. So if it's one, two, five, ten and multiples of five. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough, you know, like in, in Ruby, you have this YAML file where you have all your translations and Ruby is super in, uh, sorry, in Rails and Rails is super smart. Like if you put one, uh, it's going to be for, uh, singular. And if you put, uh, I don't recall what it is now. Do you remember? Is it? N or something like this. More, I don't, I, I don't recall. Anyways, there's a way for the the framework to pick up the right the right translation uh, of a string based on how many of those things there are uh, currently in uh, in in the in the application. Yeah. So the language does that magic for you, but I don't think the language really thought about you know how to deal with languages like Polish. Uh, so we had to come up with our own way of doing this also because on the other side, the clients, uh, the mobile clients have no idea and have nothing like this. So, uh, mm-hmm. coming from. Yeah.
0: Today, I think rails can handle uh, sort of the international internationalization framework mm-hmm. can actually handle these cases.
1: Yeah. But, We're talking yeah. about some time ago. Yes.
0: Yeah,
1: But still the, the, the clients had never encountered anything like that so we had to also make them work uh, properly and so on mm-hmm. and so forth anyways so this was the past i come to uh, the new company and uh, i was like okay do we have a localization process and it's like a noob. <laughs> what do you mean by no I mean, I'm, I'm, of course I'm dramatizing here, but what I figured out was that localization till now was done by some native speakers that speak English and they just translate the English content. And that's it. That's the extent of the localization process that we have, uh, that we have in place. So imagine when they told me that, for example, uh, being this a uh, regulated, uh, field, it's like, okay, we need, uh, we need a PM and, because my team doesn't have a PM yet. If you're out there, uh, come to us. Um, (laughs) We need you. (laughs) And the the PM uh, is supposed to at least have, uh, be able to speak German. And the same thing applies for the UX designer, because we need people that uh, have enough experience with the product and with the, German insurance or German healthcare um, mm-hmm. uh, that that they should be able then to empathize and relieve really what the what the user lives through. And I thought about all the potential markets that we are talking about potentially going, and I'm like, that's not gonna scale. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> are we gonna hire a French PM and a UX French designer because we need to localize there? So, I mean, then, it
0: could be, I mean, yes. if you really, if you really think about it, uh, the way, uh, the, the thing you are building, maybe that's just the only option, right?
1: That could be, I mean, uh, of course now I'm, I'm uh, saying it jokingly, but, uh, that's, uh, that's definitely an option. I mean, I'm pretty confident that, uh, big, big companies do have some, some sort of, uh, of this out there. They do have experts that are, uh, getting called because they know explicitly what that market is about. And then they are um, participating into the product development, into the development of the product. So that's definitely an option. But yeah, so fundamentally, that made me think how much more there is to uh, localization and going international than than what I at first was, uh, was thinking. I saw Glimpse glimpses of this when I was working uh, in my previous company, but I didn't really fully understand how ingrained that was in the company structure. So I barely noticed examples. A, a colleague of mine at the new company made me think, because I, was, I, I kept thinking in terms of like, uh, and how do we structure the code? And how do we release certain features? Because you might not be able to release, or you might not want to release Uh, certain features in, in uh, certain markets. So I kept thinking about, you know, the release management process and, and, and how to deal with this when, when we are developing the product and how to get the design ready and how to inject the translations into the app and so on and so forth. But then this colleague of mine, uh, she is in, uh, in the operations function. She was like, yeah, but it's, there's, there isn't only that, like, given that we're talking to doctors for example or we're talking to other companies we have a bunch of material that it's uh, either printed or it's uh, shared over over the wire but it's still fundamentally a brochure of some sort we have presentations we have a bunch of things that are used by our marketing team and our operations team and our sales team that we need to be able to localize for that market. Because if we want to speak to Norwegian doctors, we have to have stuff that they can read.
0: Yeah, what what happened sort of where I work, there, it it also started out as a German company, basically Mm -hmm. with just selling to German companies. And at one point we expanded to the US. And in the end, that meant a whole separate sales and customer support organization for the US because I mean if you are sales you you actually need to know the on the other side what they are actually interested in and what they mm-hmm. want right because it might just be different or especially in your case regulated differently that they actually have to have other features.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: in the end so and and in the end what also happened is that it is hard if that those sales people then don't have the influence to also influence how uh, features get developed, right? So you also need to to have someone with with a with a I don't know a VP or whatever it is in your company from that side, so that they can influence decisions being made. Because otherwise, it just you just end up favoring the other markets, right? And you might not have the uh, the success you would want to have.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. This was one of the examples that I uh, brought with me uh, from uh, from Freeletics. I remember we launched this app, this was the nutrition app. And we dedicated a lot of time to think about the recipes and how, you know, this would be uh, <laughs> done and, and so on and so forth. And it's really the silliest thing, but we had then customers writing to us from, you know, Brazil asking, where can I find quark?
0: Like, <laughs> yes, I think you do. We talked about it in one of the right? other episodes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I was like, Yeah, there's that. I had a friend of mine. He's from Italy. This nutrition app was released. When was it? It's like five years ago now, uh, almost six. And he told me, I was like, uh, I didn't know he was a, he was a user until I told him where I was working. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. I'm so happy. Like the app is awesome, blah, blah, blah. And he told me that uh, by our app, he discovered avocados (laughs) because avocados people, they weren't a thing in Italy. They, they were not, totally not. And to this day, if you go in some places, not likely to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this, like then you see like and this is where the cool part about product development comes, from, comes in place, like then out of that, we learned that we needed to customize these things for our users. So we started to think about what could be alternatives. And out of that, one of our biggest features came out like people could swipe and they could find alternatives to a certain ingredient. So instead of quark, if you are in Italy, where also there, quark doesn't exist, you can substitute that with light cream cheese or with uh, ricotta. Because tomato, tomato, it's not that different in terms of caloric intake and, and, and fat. So all cool. Yeah. Another example was that of we had we had this. Uh, we were sending out this this newsletter, and there was uh, Easter being from uh, the UK. Our content uh, manager, she was like, ah, "Yeah, let's do all this newsletter around eggs." And the only eggs we eat in Italy during Easter are chocolate eggs. So <laughs> it wasn't really working out. It's like there's no such thing. And let's not talk about Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's true. That's true. So you
1: see, like, it's, it looks like it easy, especially for us that we we live in this world of like very international companies where you have, you know, like almost everyone knows a little bit of the other cultures, but if you put yourself in the user's uh, shoes, it's not that likely that you're going to be able to, uh, to get what, what is actually their experience so yeah there was that but the things that the thing that worries me the most at the moment is that of being able to release specific uh features with a different cadence because in a highly regulated uh european market especially here where we're talking about germany you cannot just release whatever you want if you are mm-hmm. a, a medical uh, if you're providing a medical device so you have to be vetted and you have to, to wait. I learned that in the States, the FDA claims that they tell you these are the rules and you should abide to them. But mm-hmm. literally we don't have the people, so we're not going to check. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what happens is that we can't release much more frequently in the States mm-hmm. than in Europe. And then how do you keep uh, the two the two applications that are fundamentally one, but just deployed in different environment in sync in terms of, of code base Mm -hmm. with maybe certain features that you cannot release because they haven't been approved, but they have been merged. And uh, well, at least
0: they have been merged, right? That would be the other option to not to have them. I mean, you don't want to have your code diverge. Right. That sounds That's like a nightmare.
1: The idea because diverging code base is, uh, I mean, you can take their route. It's a business decision in the end you ha- you can't take that route. I like, mm. if you think about like, if you look at competitors med- like the, the medical digital, medical devices usually suck. Like they're really bad. They are released once and they stay like that forever. Mm -hmm. because it's too expensive to actually iterate over them. So that is definitely one option. You can go that way and just, you know, stop releasing. It's like, this is good enough until someone complains too loud, then we'll stick with it. It's still much better than the competitors, so that's fine. Or you could try and avoid this code base to diverge and keep, you know, deploying the the same code everywhere. What could you do? You could go with feature toggles, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's that part. You could also try a completely different approach. You could try multi tenancy. That was an idea of my former boss. I was talking to him. I was like, "Why not multi tenancy?" And that's actually a good point. I mean, in the end, everything depends. Instead of a instead of a, a company or a client, it's a country. But it doesn't really change the the outcome. Other options could be um, what we're currently doing. Cherry picking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, it's not really cherry picking. Like we kind of know what what shouldn't get into the app, and we just scan the the tickets and figure out. Okay, like this this is a gray area. Let's let's check with the other guys. Um,
0: Sounds like a very secure and and not at all error prone. (laughs) Absolutely not risky, right? (laughs) Exactly.
1: So yeah, that's the um, that's the next problem to uh, to solve. Uh, n- and this, no matter if we are going to go to more markets, I mean, whole Europe with one solution. So it, it doesn't really matter if we're customizing for the specific European markets like France or whatnot, or we're going just you know Europe wide and whatever.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the other question is how um, how much effort can you right now? put into building a good solution that will last for a long time, or do you just now need to get on with it and then eventually circle back a few years down the road and fix it? This is sort of where we are <laughs> yeah right now. I would say this is sort of the, the time for looking at the code that basically got us where we are, but now it needs to scale up and it needs to be redone, cleaned up and all these weird edge cases that probably weren't intended should be cleaned up and stuff like that.
1: I just see that's, that's healthy, in my opinion. Like, because if you, if you, if I were to hear this, like maybe 10 years ago, I'll say, Oh my God, that's so much technical debt. Why didn't you think about it before? But then after a few years uh, have passed, it's one of those trade-offs, right? If you are over-optimizing, then You're spending resources that you could have used for doing other things with bigger leverage at that point in time for something that you don't really need yet.
0: Yeah. And also in the beginning, you don't necessarily know what exactly you need. Exactly. So the the thing that we built now, this is not something we could have built in the beginning because we didn't even know (laughs) what we would, well, we sort of. I mean, it worked for a few years, right? But now we sort of have this this use case that's more or less clear and it, you could sort of fit things into it and it's it's more of a framework and now we can sort of build that thing. But back in the day, we were just trying it for the first time and we couldn't even have, have built what we, we do now.
1: And this is the whole point of modern pro- product development, right? Like you put something out there and you let it be tested by... Uh, by the users, by the marketing, by looking at what the users come back to you as a problem, then you change your product. Because it's not only an over-optimization potentially from an engineering standpoint, but it could be also an over-optimization from a product standpoint. As a product manager, you might wear the hat of a a user, but you are not the user. So in the end, uh, ideas still need to to be validated.
0: Yeah, exactly and you also don't want to spend on that level too much time uh, before you try it out yeah
1: yeah that's uh the usual logarithmic scale like there's a point by which there isn't enough return from for the effort you're putting in
0: <laughs> yeah, it is always the same right yeah yeah same thing <laughs> with estimating how long stuff will take
1: <laughs> yes but it gets closer to 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 truth to you know being true but Okay, it's not hand that hand. useful
0: yeah you could have started building it already
1: yeah, yeah. and validate it <laughs> so yeah it's a it's an interesting challenge especially with with the awareness that again like this this moment of realization that that you need a bunch of other people to support this kind of effort it's not only an engineering effort or a product effort It's also the rest of the company that needs to, to adapt. So you need, uh, you need people, you need to uh, also think, and it's not only your team that thinks about it, but the whole company has to think about it. All the other product teams have to think about it. Like we are optimizing this onboarding for the U.S. market. Is this going to work in Brazil or South Africa? You don't know because people are different. Guess what? Yeah. Uh, To some extent.
0: Yeah, when I think about our project, our, our pr- product, I think technically there isn't much, or there isn't really anything that needs to change. I mean, we have we have yeah. the solution in German and English, and that's it. I think the the, the most uh, interesting thing is is basically the sales and customer support part. It just needs to be different if you're somewhere in Europe or in the US. Yeah, and sort of again regulations. I mean GDPR. <laughs> Yes. It's is on the one side and in the other side you have the US people who would rather have their data somewhere in the US. Yeah. But this is sort of the for us it's mostly about having it deployed in multiple locations and sort of keeping it there, but there's not really much more to that. But then the big thing is of course, how do you sell it and which features are important in which country? Mm-hmm. How far basically how far on that on are your your customers how do they know what an api is do they want to use it something to communicate mm-hmm. with our solution or is it just i don't know some german company that's 100 years old and <laughs> does everything on paper still so <laughs> yes. more or less
1: and there's for us there's another dimension still to it that is that of decoupling the language that the user speaks from the region where the user is Mm-hmm. Uh, in this day and age where uh, we're talking about remote working for once. So I could be easily an Italian, uh, but working for an American company that offers our product as a, Kaya's product as a, a as a benefit. Mm-hmm. And, or I could be an expat like me living in Germany, not speaking a word of German. And uh, I would like to have access to that, to that application. So I live in Germany, but I need an English version of, uh, of the app. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to use it.
0: Yeah, but you still need to have it follow the, the local, basically, regulations, right? Yes. So you have a, <laughs> sort of two dimensions for your translations, basically. Yeah. Okay.
1: So you have to pick the region, but you also have to make sure that the, the language for the user is something that they can use. And then you end up having English, German, and British English, and American English, and uh, French English. <laughs> so, and we all know that the more incognita in the in the equation, the worse it becomes to find a solution.
0: Lots of work ahead in that area.
1: Yes, yes. Then, uh, which
0: leads us, I guess, more or less to the second topic. Because yes. Because someone needs to decide to what to do. <laughs>
1: Exactly. (laughs) So, as I said, in my team at the moment, we don't have a clear product owner. I do a little bit of it. Uh, Some other people are doing a little bit of that. We are in a phase in which there isn't a lot of active product development being done. but, But still, sometimes someone has to take a decision. Or even better, because that's Rewind. That's why I ordered a couple of books because I was like, okay, before I'm going to do too much damage, let me look at this. <laughs> like, what these people actually do behind the scenes. And, what
0: do they do be not, besides annoying engineers? <laughs> exactly.
1: And guess what? If you read these books, these have been advised by, they have been recommended by a bunch of people that know what they're talking about. If that's what happens, these people don't know exactly what, how to do their job. The most important thing that, that a product manager can do is that of figuring out what is the why. This is the... I've been hearing this over and over and over again, like product manager is the owner of the why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, this very often translates into they're also owning the what, because they are the one that are taught that they should decide what in the end gets uh, done. Mm-hmm. But that's a very different topic. The why actually translating to understanding how to reconcile the business goals with the user problem, the user's problems, the customer's problems, and finding the, a good match for that. It's a very difficult job in the end because you have to find that match while taking into account all the inputs coming from all the different functions that are experts in their own field. Right? So you have your engineers that are telling you something. Uh, you have your uh, UX designer that tells you something different. And then you have the product marketing manager that is telling you something different. And you have to find, you know, the the optimum out mm-hmm. of all this information to go in and, and, and literally prioritize based yeah. on what is possible. Right? So when the product manager comes and annoys you it's <laughs> not supposed to happen uh what i found invigorating by i, I started reading uh this one book is called build um, escape the build trap and was that the the process, de- oh, process i mean it's uh it's a big word but the process described there was um uh, literally this like you come to the team you work with with the with this objective that you want to achieve. We want to, uh, let me think of an example. We want to figure out uh, how to solve the user's problem of going to the gym every time they want, staying fit. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? So the product development actually, product development process changes over time. You go from this initial phase. I mean, to some of you, I know I'm preaching to the choir, and you're right now you're all like, "Duh!" But believe me, out in the wild, is not that. Duh. If you are, <laughs> <laughs> if you are at this point, because that's the other thing. Like this job, this career, this this skill set and craft is not taught anywhere. I was wondering, it was like the other day, I was reading a bunch of stuff, I was like how do you become a product manager? Like the, the, as software engineers, mm. at the beginning of your career, you might be the one like, okay, I'm going to do, um, computer science in, uh, in college, or, you know, it's like, I'm going to, I come from, a, in Italy, we have this, uh, technical in uh, schools that you can yeah. go to professional okay. schools, but there's nothing like that for product managers. So how are these people <laughs> like where did they grow from?
0: Yeah, where it come from yeah that's true yeah uh
1: so basically these are people that either learn on the job and then they have to figure out how to do this job uh or they learn from from someone else um there are now appearing some you know online schools that teach people how to do this and that but it's nowhere close usually it's it's People from other professions that are then moved into this uh, this part. And if you think about the fact that this is a probably the central role, the central function for a product-led company to be functioning, to be able to actually make money, it's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah.
0: When when you think about it, it is. And, it, and it's also a very very demanding position because you're also, you are you are in the end, always the one that has, has to defend what you're doing. Right. Absolutely. And you're sort of at the center and everyone comes to you, but why, why not this way? Why did you not do what yeah. I want? Right. And this is very, can be very, very draining. I've, I've, I know people that basically stopped doing yes. it because of that, basically.
1: Because that's the other fact and I'm using the word fact as a proper fact, that also many, many, many managers, entrepreneurs, C-level executives, whatever out there have no idea how to lead a product company. And that's a fact. (laughs) (laughs) So these poor people get pulled into this crazy arena and they're constantly told that they're doing the wrong thing. No matter yeah. what yeah. <laughs> the engineers are not happy because, Hey, we want to have a say in what we do. That's what makes our work meaningful. We are mm-hmm. concept workers. We're not just, you know, code churning machines, product marketing managers are there to tell you you don't know your market. This is not what people want. The executives like, Oh, but had the best idea ever. We should do this. Believe oh,
0: that's me. the worst of course. Right?
1: <laughs> but, so, Going back to the to what I was saying, you, you forgot
0: end, you forgot uh, sales uh, selling oh, something yes. that doesn't yes. exist yet.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's even worse, Jesus, because <laughs> you sell things that don't exist, and guess what? People don't know what they want. They do not know what they want in the end. Mm-hmm. So it's actually you as a company that has to pry that out of your customer's head in a way, even if you're a product company, you're still a little bit of an agency company, especially at the beginning, right? Like uh, an agency. So that's where the product development process uh, changes over time. So at the very beginning of, of the process, you have this phase in which there isn't that much actually to implement. If you think about software, of course, there's R&D, there's literally research. It's called R&D for a reason. There's research to be done to figure out this wonderful concept that I that I found out a few years ago, I uh, started hearing these whispers in the company. Oh, but what are the jobs to be done? What is the job to be done? Like, what the fuck are they talking about? Then <laughs> <laughs> I figured out and that's also this is genius. Um, the products that we put out there, we call them products in also in software, but they're not tangible. These things are not literally consumed, right? These are services that we give our users. And these services are basically jobs that our users want to delegate to someone else. Mm -hmm. If you think about it it, today, I was thinking about it as it's super stupid example, we all have alarms on our phones. Because guess what? You need to wake up in time so that you can go somewhere. So you want, as a user, you want to hire someone. That was the concept. You want to hire a product to do something for you. You want to hire a product so that it wakes you up. So it's fundamental for any phone out there to have an alarm function. Today, I mean, my grandpa would disagree, but no. If you go back 200 years, 200 years ago, there were literally people that would go and wake you up in the streets. Mm-hmm. There were people walking through the streets of England, 19th century, screaming out loud at six in the morning, it's time to wake up. So-
0: <laughs> Sorry to interject you. I, 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 if, if I hear that, I, I'm always thinking of Monty Python. Bring out <laughs> yes, your dad. Exactly. Not the same thing, but sort of. <laughs>
1: Sort of, that's the (laughs) point, I mean, you don't want to forget forget your debt. (laughs) So this is what our users are doing with our products. They don't want a feature. They want you to solve a problem for them. And these are the things you need to discover in this phase of, you know, it's a guessing game in a way, some things you might know because you have been in the field because you are one of those users and so on and so forth, because there's research done already about that. That is not what is going to make you extremely successful because what is known by anyone, it's known. It doesn't give you any competitive advantage. Yeah. But then slowly but steadily, you have some knowns that are unknowns in the sense that you are not sure about them. These are things that you know. There, these are patterns that you might see, that you might notice, but you want to validate those. And then you get out there with you know an experiment. You get out there with an A/B test, with uh, with an MVP, just trying to figure out if users want that. There are then unknowns. Un, uh, there, yes, there there are unknowns in general that to you are still kind of known. This this is what in the book they described as intuition. This is stuff that you say, my God is telling me that this is right. And again, this is something that you want to validate. So, you know, same uh, same, uh, same trick. But then there are the unknowns, unknowns. These are things that you don't know and that you don't even know how to formulate the question for for those. So fundamentally, what you do by doing this research, this is stuff that comes out, when doing UX research that it's, you know, it's like it's that moment of enlightenment, I was like, oh, my God, I never thought about this. Mm-hmm. I was talking with my mom and and she said, X, I was like, this was super annoying to her, I was like, I never thought about it because I would never be in that situation myself. And this is not our target, but maybe there's something in there that we need to explore, and this is where you do more research. So as a product manager, in the end, what you do, you are literally expanding over time the areas of the, of the knowns, trying to catch up or to stay ahead of your competitors on the unknowns, because that will give you the competitive advantage at, mm. at some point. So yeah, that's, that's where, what was interesting about what, what, what I was reading right now about the why, because this is also important. Like we were joking before, you know, about people being annoyed, engineers being annoyed about, about the, the, the product managers. Like, Engineers gets get annoyed by people that tell them how to do their own job and what to do. But that's not just engineers; just literally everybody. I mean, like, <laughs> have you ever tried doing the filling like the, the the washing machine with with the, your mother on the back? I was like, have you separated the the colored from the whites? I was like, yes, of course, I have done that. <laughs> right like it's not fun when you know what you are doing and you want to know why you are doing certain things so that you know you know exactly where to go and and what are the boundaries what is the framework what is the playing field and so on but you you don't want someone to tell you exactly every step of the way where you should put your foot
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's more now we're in the uh, parenting lessons uh, exactly. arena i think <laughs> <laughs> <You> wanna? <laughs> I mean, obviously that happens to me too, where I say, Hey, you should do it that way. But in the end, uh, at some point you have to explain why mm-hmm. you, you are saying that, that this is very easy to, to just tell someone to do something yeah. insta- and not explaining the why. This
1: is also what makes, again, management uh, difficult because you can tell people exactly what to do. It's called micromanagement. Or, I mean, it depends. Like if you have someone extremely junior, it makes sense, you know, to show them the way. Mm. Sometimes uh, don't treat people in a patronizing way. But the more the people you lead, the people you manage are the team you manage is, uh, is getting uh, experience. The less they're going to need that, the more they're going to need. And that's the direction where we're going. And that's how we're going to do it. So fundamentally, going back to 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 product development, there's this uh, trifecta, right? It's like uh, the why, uh, the how, and the what. And who is the owner of the what? The owner of the what? It's literally the team. And this is where it it a few pieces started to make sense in my head. I was like, this is exactly what Agile speaks about when it talks about cross-functional teams. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, now, I mean, Scrum is getting a dirty word, but like, bear with me. When when Scrum says that the team has to be a cross-functional team and has to be the owner, when I started reading about Agile like 15 years ago, I was like, what does this mean? Like, I don't understand. (laughs) What do you mean? But... It's exactly that. It's that collaboration where the product managers comes to the table with, guys, this is the goal that we have as a team. This is the objective we want to reach. This is what the market says. This is what our our users are saying. These are our, our numbers. And this is how our users, and here I'm talking about data analytics. This is how our users are behaving. Imagine, you know, like, a conversion rate flow and, you know, uh, sorry, an onboarding flow. And you know exactly where the conversion rate from one step to another drops. Mm-hmm. Like this is how the users are behaving. Like, how do we get from this situation to what we want to have? Like our user research, our UX designer tells us that these, this and that are the faults of, of our uh, of our onboarding. How do we get that? And this is where, you know, it's like that collaborative feeling of, you know, being really co-owners of, of what we are building uh, comes. And uh, I rest my case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It's 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 not only important in the sense of yeah, you want to motivate your team and keep it going, basically. Uh, but also sometimes better ideas come up with that in, in yeah. the, that area, right? Instead of having just someone or just someone a bit removed from from the actual team that is basically developing that stuff day to day and knows what's hard and what's easy and what's possible, I guess, to also be be part of that, yeah.
1: Yeah. And over time, you move from this phase to, uh, you know, the execution phase in which, you know, you have figured out what you want to do when you want to, you want to test your, your um, your assumptions then you put something out there you get input from from the users you see the numbers moving and then you iterate over what you have done until now and and the research part becomes less and less important until the cycle begins again
0: yeah but that's a very that's a very um user focused way of looking thing at things Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily hold true in b2b environments (laughs) that's sort of the the thing where 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 you have this phase in the middle where basically you have one or two customers and you basically do what they want to get the thing up and running
1: i mean that's this is what i was talking about when i said you know you're a little bit of an agency anyways until you become big enough that you can say and this is my product
0: yeah and if you leave it's not going to hurt me too much yeah
1: yes but that's the whole point like you if If you want to grow and you want to get out of that, that situation over time, what you need to do, this was, this is also in a book, seriously, people read it. It's really, I'm on page 40 and it's been like enlightening today. What, what the author suggests is that also in the sales cycle, what you, what you need to do is over time, pick up the patterns there. Like what does this, what, what do these people want? Mm-hmm. And find those common parts so that over time you're not customizing your product for that customer. You're providing them with a as much as possible, a you know, out of the box solution. Think about companies like Brace. For those people that don't know about it, Braze is a CRM, is is a customer something something management system. Uh <laughs> it's, like, it's what People in marketing use to reach out to users and send them push notifications. And by users, I mean you. So <laughs> <the> <laughs> oversimplification. But when you when you get into a contract with uh, with uh, Braze or even bigger PayPal, they give you an SDK. And if you don't like it, suck it up. <laughs> you implement that. You are paying them, and you are still gonna implement the things the way they want because because they are big enough to not care about you. Or I mean, they care about you as you know this uh, infinitely faced mass of customers, but you yeah. become so small that you become again a user. Let's say,
0: yeah, because you can't spend uh a big amount on each one of them yeah 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 sometimes i feel it might actually be advantageous for you as a company to eventually lose (laughs) the first customers you had Mm. because we are still at sometimes i think at least there's an over there's a big portion of 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 time invested in those early customers and it seems to me that's more effort spent than what they are actually Bringing in revenue.
1: Yeah. Or you could use the Basecamp solution. And every four years, it's like, okay, you guys get legacy. If you'd Unless you want to move, you guys get legacy. And we're going to rewrite the product from scratch for new customers. And again, you pick what you learned from the previous customers, what could work for the majority of your customers, of your new customers. You put it into the new product and you start iterating again about, you know, feedback and so on and so
0: forth. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true option. that that's their solution to two companies not being able to change.
1: <laughs> yes uh, the last part of all this uh, this juper uh, issue have been going on for twenty minutes now is that where does agile fall uh, fall into all of this? And a little bit of a uh, unfortunate sad realization was that agile was conceived by engineers, for engineers engineers that were frustrated of, you know, being fed and said what to do. So this concept of, you know, iterating is still there, but it applies very often. Like it's very often to just air quotes, the implementation part, like, and you get to me Mm -hmm. with the requirements and I'm going to implement that. And then I'll give the product back to you. And then you come back to me with more requirements. Like there, the requirements don't change while i'm implementing i'm talking again about scrum but this kind of pros like mental process uh describes what happens without taking into account all the upstream work that has to be done
0: yeah and the downstream i guess
1: yes so and
0: yeah that is very and this, this lack of understanding in the rest of the company is, is always very dangerous Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So in this, this mentality reinforces itself because then this is also what other functions expect, uh, expect from, uh, engineering, like, but I gave them the requirements. Why are they complaining now?
0: Or why why did the deadline change?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or why, why do they want to participate to the discovery? What's the point? It's like, don't distract them. It's like, there are different phases and, and different people that need to be involved in different moments. I was like, like a product manager won't be able to, at the same time, do discovery and do implementation work. Like, and by implementation work, I'm thinking about, you know, spending time with the engineers, clarifying their questions on the nitty gritty details and and Mm -hmm. thinking about how the user story, what are the acceptance criteria, blah, 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 and all this stuff while doing research, because research is, is a different is a different activity. It's how many of you have been through user interviews? It takes a shit ton of time. I've mm-hmm. never done that.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, I, I, I know I, I could have done that, but I was like, okay, I, I'm not implementing, so that's fine. And <laughs> jokes aside, <laughs> I spent quite some time talking with customer support. Let's put it this way. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, so it, it takes a lot of time to get into that, uh, you know, th- to get through that research phase and expecting someone to do this while also doing implementation work, it's it's really, really hard. So if they have the, usually in companies that follow Scrum, for example, the product manager also wears the hat of the product owner that, by the way, it's not Scrum by the book because the product owner is a shared responsibility of the, uh, of the team, but nevertheless, yeah. then how can... Uh, People also don't, don't like, how can you expect an engineer that is in an implementation phase to participate to these activities? So you, you have to calibrate your flow uh, here and there. So, of course, not 20 interruptions a day, but, you know, every now and then, like, checking in, like, hey, guys, I had an idea. What do you think about it?
0: Yeah, that's something we will have. We can maybe circle back to in a few months because that's something that's changing here, right? Where they're sort of... Hmm. Separating that, right? There's now product owners and the product managers. They are now separate That's cool. roles. But let's see how that works.
1: And uh, please because it's it's PM, but one is project manager and the other one is product manager. Those are also two different jobs.
0: So. Yes. Yeah, I I I think I picked the right one with product yeah. manager. <laughs> 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 I remember the episode where we talked about them and it's very confusing. Yeah. Yes. So I think that that's the episode for today. <laughs> yes, we have probably not exhausted at all, but I mean.
1: But we have been talking for one hour, yeah. so yeah. we don't want to bore you.
0: All right, Monica, where are you on the internet?
1: Oh, on the internet. Okay, on the internet. I am uh, on Twitter at uh, kf with an i, where I'm looking forward to your uh, DMs and to uh, have feedback. On, on especially this episode. I'm curious what you guys think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn with my name. So Monica, it's pronounced Jambito for those that don't know. Uh, you can find me uh, on GitHub and a bunch of other things like Nirnath. And you can find me on my website, monikag.me. Where can I- they find you,
0: Ruben? <laughs> Sorry, I always want to say uh, yo after the Monica G. Just sort of. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh you can e- also email us at hosts at expanding beyond.it if if you would if rather uh, send us feedback or questions mm-hmm. that way and you can find me on on twitter basically as ujh and that's it uh thank you all for listening and talk to you again soon monica bye-bye that's
1: all folks bye